Hello and welcome to Building Local Power. I'm Stacy Mitchell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We have a great show and a great guest for you today. We're going to be talking about work, about the ways in which jobs and the nature of employment have changed in recent years, and also about how work might look in the future and how working people are coming together to push for policies to improve that future. My guest is Sarita Gupta. Sarita is an expert on the economic, labor, and political issues affecting working people, particularly women and those employed in low-wage sectors. She's the executive director of Jobs with Justice, a national organization that's leading the fight for workers' rights and an economy that benefits everyone. She's also a co-founder and co-director of Caring Across Generations, which is working to build a movement to transform the way we care. Caring Across Generations has a vision for a world where everyone can age with dignity and caregivers are respected and supported. Sarita, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. There's um, a lot of talk these days when people talk about the future of work and how jobs are changing. There's a lot of talk about how the robots are coming, uh, that automation is going to eliminate a lot of jobs. And I'm just I'm curious from your vantage point, really working on the front lines of the challenges that working people are facing, you know, how much should we be worried about automation? So the future of work is definitely a top of mind for so many people in this country right now. And it's all in the news. It's all we hear about. And the image that comes to mind for everyone, as you said, is robots are taking over. And I think um, the truth is that the research is actually showing us that that's simply not true. Um, the future of work is something that people are predicting and projecting what might be coming in the future. And I would say there's like a first phase of research that was done that really put out like pretty dire numbers, like 47% of our jobs were going to be automated. Um, and the truth is, as more deeper research is being done, what we're finding is actually jobs are not all going to be automated. There may be tasks within jobs that may be automated, but jobs as we know it won't disappear completely. They may alter a bit. And the percentage right now in the most recent research is like 5% of jobs where some of that will happen. So having said that, that doesn't change the fact that there's some growing trends that we continue to see around the changing nature of work that are concerning and that we do need to be addressing as a society. First and foremost, we continue to see a rise of part-time, temporary, subcontracted work, which we use the term contingent work, right? But we see sort of a continued growth of that type of work, um, which involves often misclassifying workers as independent contractors. And we certainly see the growth of independent contractors. Often what we hear is this is a good thing. This creates more flexibility for workers. Um, but the reality is the growth of contingent work has tremendous implications on working women and men and their ability to have economic stability and sustainability in their lives. Because so much of uh, of what we see happening is people are having to hold down multiple jobs in order to make ends meet. They're not receiving benefits on the job because they're part-time or they're temporary. So they don't have access to health care. They don't have access to retirement security or any of the kind of benefits that tend to come through a traditional employer-employee relationship. And that has tremendous implications on the 
overall sustainability and ability for um, working women and men to actually participate in our economy in a meaningful way if they aren't actually making enough money to survive and thrive, which is what we're starting to see happen as a result of this trend. The other trend I would want to lift up is we're also in the midst of a massive demographic shift in this country. The implications of that are, you know, we're a rapidly aging nation. Every eight seconds, someone turns 65 in this country. That's 10,000 people a day. And people are working much longer in terms of age than ever before. Um, and the implications of having an aging workforce um, also plays into the changing nature of work and what aging workforce may want in terms of flexibility and more part-time work vis-a-vis younger generations. And so those are some of the push-pull dynamics that we see playing out in terms of trends right now um, that are important to keep in mind as we think about how we shape our future. But the truth is, Joblessness does not have to be our future, and robots taking over does not have to be our future. In fact, there are many jobs that the needs are growing for certain jobs, particularly um, jobs that have been in the low-wage sectors of the economy and have frankly been pretty poor quality jobs, like care jobs, as an example. In a moment, I talked about the demographic shifts as a rapidly aging nation, more and more of the caregiving responsibilities for families are growing and people will depend on a care workforce. And we have an opportunity now to actually create new care jobs, create them to be better quality jobs that don't pay poverty wages, but actually pay living wages that can provide benefits um, and really ensure that the workers have dignity. What I really love um, when I've heard you talk about this idea of the of the caring sector, the caring economy, and really what caring across generations has done is you could look out there and say, we've got, you know, say that there's this these huge problems. We've got this growing population of people who are aging and need some level of care to live full lives, but often can't afford it, or they're stuck with these really narrow options of how that care might be provided. And at the same time, we've got this large and growing population of caregivers, in some cases, you know, family members, uh, in some cases, professionals, but in most cases facing real economic pressure because they're either trying to juggle caring for family members and working and and all the rest of it, or they're professionals who are really underpaid in in a lot of cases. And what I love about Caring Across Generations is that you and your co-founders and the others involved in this movement and this initiative have looked out there and said, actually, this is a real huge opportunity, that there's a way in which we could use these trends and these forces to actually transform the economy moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about what that vision looks like and and how we can think of it as an opportunity? You know, in the care sector, there's growing demand for care work in our society right now. And it's not just for elder care, but for child care as well. So if we just talk for a moment about the demographic shifts, going back to that, we have a rapidly aging population. uh, But we also are experiencing the first wave of millennials having children. So there are 4 million people a year who are turning retirement age, and there's 4 million babies born right now a year. And most people um, are actually need childcare and elder care supports, right? And so the the need for care is exploding. 
And so that trend gives us such a huge opportunity to rethink our whole care system in this moment and really acknowledge the opportunities to create good quality jobs, better supports for work, for working women and men who are, who do have caregiving responsibilities, um, and to create more affordable and accessible care options for families, um, so they can make sure that their loved ones are living, aging, working with dignity, right? Um, so we believe we're at a moment now where we have to think very innovatively about the kinds of policy solutions that allow us to actually create the kinds of jobs that we want. And similar to the care sector, I think that's true in so many other sectors right now. A fascinating thing about the demographic shifts we're in is in the 60s, when you looked at population numbers, it was a population pyramid, right? So you had like the older population with smaller than the younger generations. But the reality is by the year 2035, our older population will be bigger than the younger generations. So we're moving from a pyramid to actually a column or a pillar. So if you think about it that way, there's so much opportunity in that trend. Um, Imagine like the need to build housing for seniors, permanent housing and housing for children and families or transit systems that meet the needs of the youngest and the oldest in our in our societies. Like there's so many expansive ways to think about what we're going to need and how we are deliberate in planning for those needs on the front end and to make sure, going back to the conversation about work, that we are actually um, creating opportunities for people to have good quality jobs that allow for them to sustain themselves and their families. Um, that's where the promise is in this moment, I think. So it's not really that we have a lack of work or a lack of need out there. It's really how do we think about this as a society in a way that structures that work that can benefit people and communities and and actually get it done in a way that makes sense. Absolutely. I think the other element of the conversation about work in this period um, is sometimes the conversations about the future of work actually distract us from the conversation that I think as a society, we're struggling with given all these trends. And that is what is the role of government? Um, and what does the role of government need to be? And what can people in our society depend on from government in terms of a social safety net? I mean, we're in a moment when our social safety net is under attack. Um, but like I often think about it in the discourse that's happening around this idea of portable benefits, which is great. And it's great that people are talking about it and thinking about it. But when we ask ourselves, how did we get to the point where we're asking and needing to think about portable benefits? It's important to remember our own own history, right? Like post-World War II, the U.S., unlike every other country in the world, made a decision that basic benefits like healthcare and retirement should be tied to an employer versus there be an explicit role for the government to play. And I think we're actually swimming in that conversation right now, but it's getting taken over by this idea of robots when really at the heart of it, the conversation is about what is the role of government? What is the role of employers? What should we be expecting as a people 
from our government in helping us be able to have healthy lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so agree with that. And I, I also feel like the conversation about robots distracts us from the nature of power and who has it. And, you know, so much of it, of course, is sort of coming from Silicon Valley and this idea of like, okay, we're going to take over the world and reorganize everything to our benefit. Um, And, you know, we should all be worried about automation. But really, it feels like the question is, wait, can we go back to the part about you taking over the world and reorganizing it to your benefit? Like, I think we live in a democracy. And, uh, you know, uh, this is not something that we should be ceding control over and kind of accepting this dystopian future with some crumbs on the margins for all of us. That's right, Stacey. And the thing I would lift up in relationship to that is um, in in a moment when there is such explicit attacks on collective bargaining rights and unions in particular – and you, you, you position that in relationship to a conversation of contingent work, um, which makes it harder, especially if workers are being misclassified as independent contractors. They're denied a lot of basic protections, including the right to organize and collectively bargain. Um, it really limits the voice of working people. Um, to have a say in our politics and our, in our democracy as a whole. So the other thing I think we have to think about is the question of power, as you said it, like who has power, who does not have power, and what do we need to do to ensure that whatever systems we design in the future and the types of jobs we create in the future are really helping to fuel the ability for working people to be able to come together and negotiate with any entity that has any decision-making and power over their wages, their conditions, and their overall well-being. And that's particularly important given we're waiting on a Supreme Court decision of, you know, Janice versus AFSCME, which would essentially, you know, decimate collective bargaining for the public sector and so it's important for us to not lose sight of the of how critical it is for working people to be able to have voice and agency in shaping their jobs and their futures. And I'm really clear looking at the teacher strikes across the country, which are so inspiring right now, you know, from West Virginia to Oklahoma to Arizona, um, you know, they're in Kentucky. I mean, these are working people who are not only fighting for better um, wages and benefits, but they are fighting for more funding in the education system that's been defunded in too many states. And they're all in right to work states, right? These are these are teachers who technically don't have the right to be in a union in the way that we understand it in in non right to work states. Um, But the fact that that doesn't stop working women and men from taking action and speaking up and voicing what they believe is needed and necessary, um, I think is a hopeful sign of our ability to make sure in the future we're continuing to create pathways that really support working people being able to have a real voice in our democracy. I want to go back and ask you a little bit more about contingent work, because that just feels like such an important issue. But I, I want to stay a little bit with this thread for a moment. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm sort of struck by the ways in which you know unions have shrunk to a smaller share of the workforce. We have um, a lot of ways in which labor law has been 
altered to make it harder for people to act collectively on the job. As you noted, we have this Supreme Court case uh, coming down in the next few weeks about public sector workers. Um, And at the same time, we also have some really exciting things that have happened. I'm thinking of the fight for 15, for example, the teacher strikes, which I I, I, am sort of struck by the way you put that, that these, these aren't just about teachers not just talking about wages and working conditions, but they're talking about school funding and how do we organize educate, you know, how do we think about educating our children? I mean, it's a, it's a labor movement that's part of a, a broader social movement, maybe in the way that, that labor used to organize. When, when you look out at this, this landscape, what inspires you? And are there ways in which the organizing that's happening outside of traditional unions, on the one hand, it seems really exciting, but I also don't want to overlook the fact that in some ways this is a, a organizing from a much less powerful position. So how do we think about that as we move forward? There's so much happening in the landscape that is truly inspiring. You're absolutely right about that. Um, I mentioned the teachers. Um, I would lift up the Fight for 15 campaign, which really has made a huge difference. I mean, think about not only have we won you know, minimum wage campaigns in states and cities and counties across the country, but we've actually changed the conversation. (laughs) Like people are actually having conversations about wages in ways that weren't happening before. Um, And really being bold in their demands around what wages can and should be in order to be meaningful and supportive for families, um, particularly low-income families and people who are in low-wage sectors of the economy. Um, retail workers is another. I mean, all these exciting, predictable scheduling campaigns that are happening across the country because people are demanding that we should have control. We should at least know when we're scheduled to work, right? We should know that we're getting enough hours of work. I mean, imagine, you know, I think a lot about my, a really good friend of mine. Her name is Kimberly Mitchell. And Kim was a leader here in Washington, D.C. She was a worker at Macy's, um, and she is in a union, and the company decided to go to an automated scheduling system. And when that happened, she saw drastic cuts in her hours and just an enormous unpredictability of hours, which had huge implications on her budget let alone her ability to care for her daughter, right? Like make it to parent-teacher conferences or make it to soccer games or make it to things, let alone being able to like schedule her own medical appointments and things that she needed. And, you know, Kimberly has been a big part of fighting for a predictable scheduling campaign here in D.C. to say we need to put a stop to this, much like what was won out in San Francisco with the Retail Workers' Bill of Rights. Um But Kimberly's story is also important because later, Kimberly actually talked to me about her care story, that she has a care story. She also is a caregiver to a grandmother who had cancer. And Kimberly's story for me was, again, an eye-opener of when we talk about contingent work, there is so many dynamics at play here. Like when you have part-time work and you have to piece together work, and then we don't even take into account the kinds of caregiving responsibilities that people have, that's what we need to address as a society as a whole. We need to understand that 
Then the fights for paid leave across the country, which is another very inspiring set of fights that are happening in addition to paid sick days campaigns that have been winning. But paid leave and paid sick days and predictable scheduling and minimum wage, higher, you know, fight for 15. These are all important wins and components of how we better a whole sector of contingent work um, to make them more sustainable for working people um, moving forward. So those are some of the ways in which I'm inspired by campaigns that are in motion right now. And then certainly the coming together of labor with community, with worker centers, with a broad ecosystem of groups to demand more. Like I think a lot about the Chicago Teachers Union strike um, that really was framed as like a fight for the common good. That was about education. It was about transportation and housing um, and being able to take those demands to the bargaining table with the county and with the city to say, we actually as teachers care about what is happening to our students. And therefore, we together are negotiating for a better deal. And I think we're seeing a lot of those kinds of campaigns happen around the country, which is also tremendously promising in this moment. I want to just come back and, and underscore this issue around hours and just-in-time scheduling. Because I, you know, for people who have not worked in jobs where that's uh, the case, it's really sort of shocking to realize how it works. I mean, essentially, scheduling starts to happen by a computer. It happens at the last minute, right? And you don't know when you're going to work week to week, how many hours you're going to get, and it can be at any time of the day. And, and particularly if you're working, say. Uh, at, at Walmart or a big retailer that might be open 24 hours a day, I mean, it can play complete havoc. And you try to think about, you know, it, taking care of your kids and everything else that goes on in life. Um, the policy that, uh, had, you know, that some cities have been passing, I know San Francisco, you mentioned, talk a little bit about what that actually does. Sure. So in San Francisco, uh, Jobs Adjusted San Francisco, um, organized a table and a campaign with a number of partners in the city to push for a Retail Workers' Bill of Rights. And what was won was essentially two weeks' notice on schedules. Um, so that was really important. So workers knew two weeks in advance what their work schedules or, or know what their work schedules are. Um, and it it really demanded, um, or what we won was the ability for uh, employers giving more hours to workers before hiring more part-time workers. Because a big issue that we were hearing from retail workers in San Francisco was, you can raise our wage and it won't mean anything if we don't have enough hours of work. So essentially, in the Retail Workers Bill of Rights, we were also able to add a provision in there about the need for more hours of work to be given to the existing workforce before hiring new workers um, by these retail companies. Uh, and that was really significant. I mean, this ordinance impacts 40,000 workers in San Francisco. Um, and what's exciting is now through the enforcement of this ordinance, uh, we're able to talk to hundreds of workers, you know, like every, you know, every few weeks, we're talking to workers to make sure they know about this law, that they understand what their rights are, um, and really engage them in ongoing civic engagement. I don't know how else to say that. I mean, we really, our intention all along was not just to win this campaign, but to make sure that these retail workers also had a voice in building their own worker organizations and be able to 
continue to have leverage, build power and leverage uh, to make further policy changes that would better their lives and their working conditions, as well as be able to negotiate directly with employers on a, a wide variety of issues. Um, and there have been great partnerships in San Francisco building that out right now as we speak. One of the organizations that was around that table when that legislation passed in San Francisco um, that our listeners might be particularly interested to know about was the San Francisco Locally Owned Merchants Alliance, which is a group of independent retailers in the city. And what was interesting is that, you know, they, um, you know, the the big retail chains, they use this just-in-time scheduling and this sort of cycling through part-time people rather than giving people full-time hours as a way to really cut their labor costs to the bone, you know, uh, it's a tool for keeping those wages really, or keeping the labor costs really low. Um, and, you know, when Jobs with Justice reached out to the local merchants group, they were like, we don't have computerized scheduling, and we just don't operate in that way. You know, if someone's scheduled for a shift, we don't send them home early. We don't, you know, make changes at the last minute. It's just not how we work by and large, you know, at the scale that we're operating, we're not this sort of automated uh, sort of giant system. And so they were, you know, and one of the things that they were saying is that part of the cost of just-in-time scheduling is that it creates an unlevel playing field, that employers who don't treat their workers that way, who don't try to cut labor costs to, to the minimum, are at a competitive disadvantage against those, you know, who do, the big chains that do. And so it was an obvious campaign for them to get involved in. Um, but to me, I think sort of speaks to, there, there are more opportunities out there for making common cause, because um, it just feels like in a lot of ways, the big issue in our economy right now is is concentrated power. And if you're on the uh, outside of that, the losing end of that, whether you're a farmer or a small business person or a working person, you've all got something in common. Is that your sense? Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And um, the example you shared from San Francisco is is a perfect example of what we're talking about. Or I think a lot about the one fair wage campaigns across the country that are happening, that are uh, attempting to eliminate the tipped wage, which often puts workers, especially women, in very vulnerable positions, um, right, where they they feel like they have to endure harassment on the job in order to get the tips they need to survive, right? Um, and so doing away with, you know, we're promoting one fair wage across the country, we see a handful, uh, well, actually many uh, high road employers coming forward and saying, absolutely, we should do away with the tipped wage. Let's do this better. We can, in fact, do this better. Um, or I think about the paid sick days and the paid leave campaigns across the country. This is especially happening around uh, paid leave. Most most people don't realize in the U.S., I'm always amazed that um, we are one of two countries in the world that does not provide paid you know, family medical leave, right? Mm -hmm. And there is great work happening across the country to change that, to, to change state policies, local policies. And there have been so many small businesses that have come forward to say, this is a good thing and we support this. And this is why we need policy in place to help support our ability to actually provide leave. Um, so there's, you're absolutely right, Stacy, that there's a lot of room for coming together right now. And, um, shaping policies of the future that are both both good for local economies and they're really good for working families. 
You're listening to Sarita Gupta, Executive Director of Jobs with Justice and Co-Director of Caring Across Generations. I'm Stacey Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We'll be right back after a short break. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please share it with your friends. That helps us reach a wider audience. And also, if you like the work that we do, please consider making a donation to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Your financial support not only underwrites this podcast, but it also helps us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the assistance that we provide to policymakers and citizens. Please take a minute and go to ilsr.org slash donate. That's ilsr.org slash donate. Thank you. And we're back with Sarita Gupta, Executive Director of Jobs with Justice and Co-Director of Caring Across Generations. Sarita, I, I want to go back to a couple of points in the conversation where uh, there were different roads we could have gone down, and, and I want to go back to some of the ones that, that we didn't. I want to talk a little bit more about the contingent work. Um, and in particular, I, I wonder if you can help just sort of get help us get oriented to what all these jobs are, because I think there's a lot of variety of types of jobs that are in there. And what are some of the companies that are prominent in this space? One thing I'll say is there's a big assumption when we talk about contingent work that it's all in the low-wage sector, which is actually not true. This is an issue that's cutting across, you know, the issue of part-time and temporary work and subcontracted work is actually cutting across the economy, which is really important to understand. But some of the major corporate actors who are implicated in promoting contingent work um, are certainly, I mean, Amazon is a big one, right? And Amazon's been in the news and, and, uh, and you know this as well as anybody else, but Amazon is a major reta- retailer, a, uh, a major retail company, a major logistics company, a major um, player in our economy right now um, is, uh, is really a bad actor in terms of contingent work. Um, and we see that endless stories in the warehouse um, of of working people who are just frankly working under pretty hazardous conditions mm-hmm. um, with very little ability um, to voice their concerns and their need for change without being retaliated against. So Amazon, Walmart certainly is a big uh, retailer who has over the years, as many of us has, have campaigned for Walmart to be a better company um, in terms of how they treat their employees. They've been a big promoter of contingent work. Um, and we see it in the uh, certainly in the restaurant sectors. We see it in healthcare. It's growing in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And frankly, it's even growing in education. There's a lot of subcontracted work. There's a lot of temporary work in, in the fields of education right now. Um, and then certainly in manufacturing, uh, or we have been seeing a lot of work subcontracted. Uh, the auto industry, I mean, is a great example of major companies that, you know, the Fords and, you know, General Motors and all having these like, you know, subcon- there are these subcontractors who are making the auto parts. And a lot of that work is moving to the south right now um, in right to work states. Um, and, you know, so we're seeing a lot of the sort of contingent, again, contingent work happening across the economy, not just, not only in the low-wage sectors mm-hmm. um, right now. Yeah, I, I, I saw a statistic that um, 
basically all of the net new job growth that we've had in the last 10 years has been contingent work, and that almost one out of every five U.S. workers is now in this sort of some sort of alternative uh, work arrangement. What's driving this trend? I mean, what's at the root of why companies are doing this? Well, Stacey, it's what you said earlier. It's about driving the labor costs down. Um, if you hire workers as a part on a part-time basis uh, or a temporary basis, you don't you're not responsible for for providing benefits, mm-hmm. right? So, as taxpayers, we are actually footing the bill. <laughs> for um, providing basic benefits um, to working people. Uh, so it's both, it's keeping the labor costs down. It, that's the number one reason why we see mm-hmm. this playing out. It's also to, um, it, frankly, to uh, prevent the unionization of the workforce. I mean, we've seen endless companies where the workers were employees of the, like, of, had a traditional employee-employer relationship, and then suddenly these workers are misclassified, and they're misclassified as independent contractors. And there's a long history of that in companies like FedEx and others, or even if you look at the tax, the whole taxi industry, um, you know, at one time, taxi workers were in fact, considered employer employees, they were not independent contractors. And uh, when that shift happened, you know, is when uh, we saw some of the basic protections, wages, um, needs of taxi drivers uh, fall, like the quality of the work really fell in terms of these being good, sustainable jobs. Um, and that's why we see so much active taxi worker organizing happening across the country right now. Yeah, I mean, companies like Uber, this sort of idea that you don't really work for them when they control really every aspect of your work seems, uh, you know, it's a disconnect. And I think, as you pointed out earlier, it also means that they can't organize because they're technically independent, and therefore it's sort of like they're, they would be colluding, if you will, if they organized. If we, you know, we have state laws and federal laws around misclassification, which is this idea that, you know, an employer can't just decide all of a sudden that you're a subcontractor. You know, if they, uh, it's th- that if the nature of the work arrangement is that you you ha- you meet all of the you know typical criteria of being an employee, you a, a, an employer can't just say, oh, you're a subcontractor to get out of all the obligations that come with being an employer just on their own. There's a set of rules at the state and federal level that govern that. And as I understand it, we haven't been that great about enforcing those, or they really haven't kept up with the changing times. And it sounds to me, I mean, although we hear a lot about the companies say, oh, well, the purpose of this is flexibility. You know, people want to have flexibility and and that sort of thing. But really, I mean, it sort of sounds like for a lot of these jobs, if state and federal government stepped in and said, no, 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 I'm sorry, you can't misclassify workers. Or um, if they are really independent subcontractors, then these are the they have to have more power over their work in order to qualify that way, that the companies would say, oh, well, you know, suddenly the flexibility idea would disappear because it really is just about cost. That's right. And often when I hear the flexibility argument, the question I pose is, um, is that flexible by choice? Or um, is it forced? Right. So I meet 
so many workers. I mean, if you get into Ubers and Lyfts, for example, and you talk to people and you say, tell me about your work. And more often than not, I meet drivers who say, well, this is one of three jobs that I have. And the reason I drive an Uber or a Lyft is because my other jobs don't give me enough hours of work and I don't make enough and I don't have benefits. So I have to pay out of pocket for a lot of things. And so this helps helps me. Like, it's such a crazy conversation. So then if you had a choice of a full-time job that provided benefits to you, would you take it over driving, you know, uh, in a Lyft or an Uber or whatever kind of flexible job out there? I, I'm not, tar- I don't mean to target the Uber and Lyft drivers because uh, it's, again, we see this happening in many sectors. And more often than not, people are like, if I could get a good job that pays well and gives me benefits, that would make my life so much easier than trying to piece together three, three, four jobs, which is what we see all the time. Um, that's what I, I feel like I run into majority of the time. So this, we have to be very careful about the way in which the language of flexibility is used and really be um, thoughtful about asking the question, is it true flexibility or is it uh, is that really by choice or is it because they have to because they don't have any choice? Mm-hmm. That's an important component of many elements of contingent work. And your the misclassification piece is huge. It's a huge problem. And you're absolutely right. There's not enough enforcement of the laws that are on the books, which is why we also have to figure out um, how to continue to work work with local labor agencies as much as we can where it's possible. I'm really um, heartened by the number of community-based organizations right now that are doing community-based enforcement of some of these laws across the country. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I got to know you through our mutual concern about the retail sector. You know, as a big sector of the economy, it's like one out of every 10 private sector workers is in retail. And, you know, it's a sector that you know, we've had the rise of big box stores and Walmart and now Amazon um, and often very low wage jobs, as well as a lot of uh, impacts on local economies and communities. One of the things that you often hear or that is you know, sort of part of the way that I think our society kind of talks about work and wages is this notion that we used to have good jobs because they were manufacturing jobs and manufacturing jobs are good jobs. And then we've gone to the service sector economy and that's why we have low wage jobs and these jobs are, are low skill. But, you know, in thinking about that and talking to Walmart workers, for example, over the years, I'm never, you know, when they talk about what they do, what their work, what their day is like inside. It doesn't strike me as low skill. Like it seems like a job where you're juggling a lot of different things and a lot of demands from the public and uh, many different types. I mean, it just, it does not strike me as low skill. It seems like a pretty high stress and a lot of stuff going on. Um, You know, is there some magic to manufacturing jobs? Were they really so much more skilled that they, that that's why wages were were good and, and why retail wages are bad? I want to remind us of history and that back in the day, auto work was considered low skill, low pay work. Oh, really? Right? I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. That before all the strikes of auto workers happened, the assumption was you're sort of on an assembly assembly line. And so it's low skill work and you could, you know, be paid very low wages. And it was because working 
people were able to really come together and organize and demand better and unionize that they were able to really shift that. And then over time, these auto jobs became good pathways to the middle class jobs. I mean, they're, they're, they were middle, they are middle class jobs. And so I say that story because there's a way in which it's true. There's a narrative and we culturally believe somehow service sector jobs mean they have to be low wage jobs. And that's simply not true. We actually can reimagine what service sector jobs can and should be, given, again, the growing needs of many of the services in our economy right now. Um, there's no reason why service sector jobs can't be good middle class jobs. There's no reason for that. And that's the push through the Caring Across Generations campaign that we're making is how do we have these jobs that have been poverty wage jobs that are, you know, the workforce is largely majority women, lots of women of color, lots of immigrant workers, uh, very many of them are dependent, about 30 percent of them are dependent on um, food programs, right? They're dependent on social, the social safety net, um, and they don't have the right to organize and collectively bargain. This has been a workforce that's been historically excluded from basic labor protections um, in our country due to a legacy of slavery. And when you understand all of that and you realize there's a growing need for care workers in our society, what prevents us from reimagining these jobs to be good, high-paying jobs where there's a real pathway, to your point of the Walmart workers you talk to, a real pathway for training and career ladders that actually allow people to have a pathway into a career um, versus be stuck in a job. I mean, we can reimagine a lot of service sector jobs in that way. Um, we don't have to abide by this paradigm that service jobs are low-wage jobs, that equals low-wage jobs. Um, and I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to think about that. And as we're thinking about jobs moving forward, I mean, this is a little bit off the topic of retail, but there are really good efforts underway right now about how we create more access to good career pathways. And so one sector is the construction sector. How do we create more pathways for women and people of color who have ex historically been excluded from these career pathways? How do we create more access and supports for uh, women and people of color into these jobs that are good, well-paying jobs with real training and growth opportunities? Um, and if we can look at that and make that happen, again, I, we shouldn't limit our imaginations and what's possible in the service sector as well. Mm -hmm. I'm so struck by the the opportunity around caring jobs in part because it seems to me that you know not only is there an opportunity to make um, this really valuable work be well paid and well supported, but also the fact that um, you know there are no guarantees in this world that any of us can you know have any uh, illness or disability suddenly befall us and in fact, you know, given the nature of mortality, that's a place where we're all going at some point. And, you know, the only guarantee that really is out there is the guarantee that we could provide for one another. And the idea of, of 
you know, structuring a society in which you know that you would be taken care of by, you know, someone who's able to take care of themselves and their own families um, and who brings all of the sort of skills and um, sort of love and care to that work that they do. And also like the opportunity to have it be um, smaller scale and more community-based care, you know, both at home in a supported way or in sort of smaller scale, you know, different kinds of arrangements that people could make if we had the right kinds of policies in place. Um, I know that states are sometimes, I I think states are, are kind of beginning to lead the way on what, how do we make policies to make this vision happen? And, you know, it seems to me that like, that's a message that there would be so much popular support for, you know, given, given those dynamics. Um, I read some about something that's happening in Hawaii. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that law and if there are other good examples like that. Absolutely. States are on the front lines of this issue of care. Um, states are really contending with this question of how do we adequately support our rapidly aging populations? Um, and so across the country, we are seeing really exciting state level campaigns that are beginning to address this. And a campaign that we recently won about a year ago uh, was in Hawaii. It's called the Kapuna Caregiver Program. And this program essentially provides a financial benefit of $70 a day um, to working family caregivers um, who are caring for an aging adult in their lives. Um, And the money can be used towards transportation costs, home care services, respite care, home modifications, meals, like whatever working family caregivers need in order to both stay in the workplace and care for their loved ones. And this campaign was really born out of talking to so many people in the state, and particularly women who were saying that they often felt like as their caregiving responsibility was growing, that their only option was to leave the work site because they couldn't afford the care that they needed for their loved one. And so uh, we heard endless stories of people saying they need more supports in order to truly stay in the workforce. And, you know, it's worth saying for a moment, um, the reason I'm so proud of the campaign that Caring Across Advocates won in Hawaii is it was a huge step in the direction that we need to go. But it also is a way that we address this new trend, which is uh, we're seeing actually uh, a decrease in women's labor force participation. First time Wow, in I didn't know that. Huh. Yes. And the reason, uh, one of the major reasons for that is because of caregiving responsibilities, mm-hmm. whether it's child care or it's elder care or spousal care. Um, and of course, that has huge implications for women. If they're leaving the workforce, studies have shown, like if you're over the age of 50 and you leave the workforce, you are essentially um, losing about 300 in wages, social security benefits, and private pensions. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of resources to be lost out of the pockets of people, right? And so what we're, we're seeing is trends of women aging into poverty as a result. And so, again, we, we can rethink the kinds of supports that working family caregivers need in order to stay in the workforce and care for their loved ones, which is one major tenant of our campaign. Um, and 
building off of the Hawaii victory in Washington State. There's um, great work being done by advocates in Washington State uh, to move a long-term care trust act, which is doing something very similar, like creating a financial benefit for any working person over the age of 18 who is caring for somebody else and or themselves um, to make sure that they have the supports in place for long-term care. Um, and so again, this is creating more options for families. So those are two really exciting campaigns that are in motion. And certainly in your great state of Maine, we have this incredible ballot measure that's moving uh, for universal home care. Mm -hmm. uh, and this ballot measure is really important because it's an opportunity uh, to ensure that people have access to home care services and supports. And if one, it will create an influx of money into the system that will allow for the creation of good care jobs and the training and support of a workforce um, that is very much needed in the state of Maine. That's great. Um, well, that's a lovely uh, no note to close our conversation on. I do have one final question. We often ask people who come on the show, if you have uh, any kind of recommendation, it could be a reading recommendation or a watching recommendation, and it doesn't have to be related to your work. It could be anything at all. I just finished reading an incredible book called uh, When They Call You a Terrorist. And this book was written by Patrice Conkillers. She's one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. And it's an incredible narrative of her own story. And she talks a lot about her life journey that led her to start the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think it's also one of the most thoughtful books that talks about work in the way that mm -hmm. we've been talking about, um, because she really highlights her mother's experience with work, her own experience with work, and really how all these issues are so connected. Like you can't talk about work and not talk about care. And you can't talk about care and work and not talk about health care. You can't talk about all of this and not talk about criminalization of communities. It's just a beautiful read that I, it certainly I have found inspiring and would really encourage people to pick up and read. That's great. Say the title one more time. When They Call You a Terrorist. Right. We will put a link to that on our show page uh, so people can find that. That's a terrific recommendation. Thank you so much, Sarita, for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on social media. And once again, please help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and Nick Stumo-Langer. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Stacey Mitchell. I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Mm -hmm.